Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hello and welcome. Today, I am so excited to welcome back Dr. Sara Nasserzadeh to the podcast. Dr. Sara Nasserzadeh is a world-renowned author, speaker, and consultant with a PhD in social psychology. Over the past two decades, she has worked across 40 countries and is recognized as one of the most influential thought leaders in the fields of relationships, sexuality, and intercultural fluency. Dr. Sara was one of the first guests on Reimagining Love, and today she's joining us once again to talk about her new book, Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love. This book uses proven research, her research, to identify and describe the six ingredients needed to give love a chance to emerge and bloom into a thriving relationship. Dr. Sara encourages us to move beyond the myth of finding your perfect mate and instead to focus on creating something special together. And she reminds us that strong relationships are like tending to a fire instead of constantly trying to reignite a spark. And then together, we explore the six ingredients and discuss why reciprocity and intentionality are so important in relationships And then we respond to a listener's question about a disconnect between how she and her partner prioritize friendships. I'm such a fan of Dr. Sara's work, and I'm grateful to get to share this conversation with you, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Dr. Sara, welcome back to Reimagining Love. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited. I was just saying before we started, this is the way that two busy working professional mamas get to spend time together is by recording a (laughs) podcast together. It's been so long since I've seen you and I love the time that I get to spend with you. So we've got to make more of it. Thank you. The same. Absolutely. We will. (laughs) So I can't wait to talk about your new book, which I just... I love it. You really, really hit it out of the park. You know, you are a seasoned, wise guide for us and have been for many, many years. But this, I think, is my new favorite thing that you've ever done. So I congratulations. I can't wait to get into it. But I have to start by asking you our reimagining love question. So Dr. Sara, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you are reimagining love in one of your important relationships these days. In all of them, actually, the most Hmm. important thing I do to reimagine love in my relationships is not to leave them to chances. That's what Mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. I really would like to be as intentional as possible because I think in this day and age, we have enough knowledge. So it will be quite ignorant if we don't use it. You don't want to leave your relationships to chance. You don't want to just say, okay, I'm in this relationship, therefore it's fine. You want to take what you know 
and make sure that you are embodying it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to be one of those people that preaches to other people and then I suffer at home, you know, in my <laughs> own relationships. One time, actually, I, I told a client of mine, uh, there was a couple that I was helping and uh, they really insisted to meet after 6 p.m. And I really thought about it and I knew the couple could really use help, but I just couldn't. And I told them, I said, look, I'm so sorry, but I cannot not be present for dinner for my children. I mean, I, I just can't. I can't do that. So, you know, there are times that um, it comes at a cost. But um, yeah, I want to be intentional. I want to make sure that I apply what I know. Well, I think it's really important as a relationship expert that you are saying to us that the knowledge only goes so far. You know, you make the point in your brand new book, Love by Design, that we are living in a time of much more relationship literacy than we've had. You know, you and I have been doing this for 20 plus years and it's like day and night around relationship literacy compared to when we started our careers, right? There's so much more information out there, but the information is only as good as our willingness to use it. And even as a relationship expert who knows everything there is to know, you still have to, at those forks in the road, choose to walk the talk and prioritize your relationships. Absolutely. And it is hard. But the bottom line is for my clients, I can refer them to a trusted colleague. But for my child, there's only one mother. Oof. You know, so there are situations like that, that you really need to think about. Going back to that literacy that you mentioned, I agree with you, literacy and also the willingness. Many people also are willing to do the work, but they don't know where to put the effort. I'm pretty sure you've seen that. And I'm pretty sure it's one of the reasons that you published this. <laughs> she holds up <laughs> love every day. <laughs> You're so sweet. Because it's, it's important. It's important for right. people to know that where do I put my effort? You know, the choices of words that we have, like all of those matter. Relationship fluency is all in the details. Right. Your new book, um, Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love, really is the heart of this book is you wanting us to debunk, like look for all the places inside of us that this myth lives. And the myth is just what you said, leaving love to chance. The idea that love is about finding our other half, that that is the work of love is just finding our other half. And you are diligent and persistent about debunking this myth. Why? What is what happens to us when we believe that love is about finding our other half? How does that shape then how we search for love and, and how we behave in our relationships? I can give you an example of a person that I met in my office in New York. She was highly accomplished. She came to me and said, well, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I'm looking at her, God, she's attractive, she's successful, so intelligent. And I asked her, I said, what do you think you do wrong? She said, well, you know, I moved from my hometown. This is one of the examples that, that I actually give in the book. And I try to include as many examples as possible for people so people can resonate with one person or the other and find a way for themselves, right? Through those stories and narratives of other people. So I'm looking at her as we are in the conversation that she did all the work and she moved from her hometown to New York City, which is the city of opportunities for people, you know, all of that. And then I'm just listening to the words as, as this young woman talks about, I came to New York City to find love. And I look at her and I notice this pending uh, around her neck that looks like a, a keyhole. And I said, oh, I'm actually curious. What is that? She said, well, this is something to remind me every day as I put my makeup on in the morning that I'm in this city to find the key for this keyhole. I said, look, how do you know when you see the key? Are you going to try them out? What is your method? You know, it's good and wonderful and poetic to think about it that way. But then what are the elements that you're putting in place? And as we started to talk, I also asked her the question that I ask many people. I ask them to bring two objects to me. One is the love that they think they deserve. And one 
to represent the love that they desire. And so she comes back. In one hand, there is this really soft and cozy blanket. And on the other, this is spiky rock. I said, well, what is what? She said, well, I'm really, really looking for this soft, cozy blanket. That's the love I want. But what I think I deserve is this spiky rock. So if you can't really do the work to bring the two together, why is that? What is my love blueprint, as I call it? You know, how was love shown to me as I was growing up? What was called love? So, for example, she was talking about if I was a good student, if I did my homework well, if I helped my parents, if I helped my younger brother, then I was a good person and deserving of love. So they said, oh, I love you because you help your brother. I love you because all of those become our blueprint as what we deserve, right? So in the real world, she ended up in all of these abusive relationships that were all task-based. So if she could serve the person, she felt like you know she was loving them while the other person expected something else from her. So it was so confusing for her. And throughout our work, as we are talking about this, she admits that I thought that I would see the person, we will fall in love, and then we will be two bodies in with one soul and, you know, connected and all, all, all that that we grew up with. As we started debunking it, it was pretty hard for her because this was a new notion for her to think that, like, for example, we talk about one plus one equals one. So two people meet and then become really close to one another. When they are enmeshed with one another, they fell in love. They can't live without each other. Then, oh, that's a great idea to go ahead and marry and have family, whatnot. That's a very bad idea because mm -hmm. at that moment in time, when the individuality is lost, when you dismantled your mental capacity, cognitive capacity, then you are going to decide over the biggest and most important contract of your life. So that, that was one issue that I could see, right? I call it submergent love. Mm -hmm. But then one thing that I wanted to propose to people was how about if we think of it as one plus one equals three? So all the ingredients that are necessary for that thriving life and thriving love over time to be present for love to even have a chance to emerge. So imagine that a person comes to you with that mentality that I'm going to find the key to my door, to my, you know, to the keyhole, shifting that person to that mentality that actually you're going to make the door first. And then you are going to describe it for yourself. And then you're going to make the key to that keyhole. It's a huge shift. Beautiful. Beautiful. You know, in that example of the key and the keyhole, you so, so seamlessly highlighted for us the way in which your client's origin story perfectly fit, <laughs> like a key in a keyhole, with a cultural myth, right? So she, you know, she was expected to be the perfect daughter. So how could she not go then looking for her partner as the perfect fit, right? Like she was taught that that nothing, nothing less than perfection is okay. And so of course, that's what a relationship would have to feel like is you have to fit perfectly with me. And she, she comes by that not only through her family of origin experience and her growing up experience, but also by this myth of our love as a soulmate, love as the one. And so she really was set up like so many of us are set up in both of those ways, the kind of unique personal wounds and tender spots fitting with all these cultural messages and what you helped her see. And I love this idea. I want you to break this down even further about the one plus one equals one versus one plus one equals three. But what you really helped her you helped her find a pathway where she where she would meet up with somebody and the two of them would create together something that was bigger than both of them and that could really hold each of them. Okay, so one plus one equals one is submergent love. One plus one equals three is emergent love. Yes. Okay, so what does that one plus one equals one look and feel like? And why are we so at risk of losing ourselves in that way? Well, first of all, it's because we are expected to lose ourselves. 
Anything short of that, you are calculative. You are a gold digger. You are not to be trusted. You are strategizing a little too much about your relationship. So if I don't go head first, if I don't go all in, then don't lose myself. And if there is anything left of me, so to speak, it means that I don't love you enough. I'm not authentic enough. I'm not loyal enough to the relationship, which as the two of us know, (laughs) is completely the opposite of how a successful relationship would look like in the long run. So what happened with us was I honestly stopped going to weddings when I was 15 because I read somewhere that 50% of marriages end up in divorce. And honestly, I couldn't fathom that why would people be foolish enough to even celebrate them? I mean, why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> the risk is so high. You were very mathematical. You were like, this makes no sense. The numbers are not adding up here. I'm out. <laughs> it was scary. It was so scary. Yeah. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I am out of this. And then obviously, as life has it, so I met my husband now. And then as we started dating and I was thinking, maybe I could consider this thingy called marriage, but I need to first decode it, make sure that I don't fail in it. And also there were so many broken relationships, heartbreaks around me growing up. So I really wanted it not to happen to me. And then, um, so as we got into it, I thought I had a plan. I thought, okay, so we are going to make this intentional with the knowledge that I had with the books that I read. And God bless my parents. They're very wise. So I consulted them often and they're still together and they made it work for themselves in their own way. So I would go back to them, say, okay, so now what? Here, what? So I thought I've got it figured out. And then through multiple immigrations and we became even more enmeshed with one another, uh, with my husband, because we only had each other. So from that background that we came from, right? And then after a while, I thought everything was perfect. He thought everything was perfect until one day I was riding with a bunch of friends of mine from the graduate school and I had a panic attack. And back then there was no mobile. So I I waited until I came home. And then I told him, I said, look, I had this really weird feeling. I think it was an anxiety attack. I don't know. And then he said, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Why? We got into the analysis of it as we do, okay. you know, all of that. Okay. Uh-huh. And then I said, maybe I need to see someone, uh, especially because I was studying to do the work that I do now. So, and as a part of our studying was to see a personal therapist. So I went to a psychologist and the first thing he tells me, he said, well, you had a panic attack. Interesting. Tell me about your close relationships. I said, well, I have a perfect husband. I have a perfect marriage. I have perfect parents. I have perfect everything. And then he just looks at me and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's nothing left of you. And then as we are talking about all of these, he started questioning my um, relationship with my husband. Are we too close with each other? Are we finishing each other's sentences? All of that was true. I was pretty, pretty destabilized when I left that office, I have to tell you. And I came home and then we had a long conversation with my husband, with quite a few friends, you know. And then it got me thinking that if I thought I've got it all figured out and this is not perfect, then what is? I followed the protocol. We became one. Everything is perfect. You know, we breathe for each other. We think for each other. We finish each other's sentences. This is perfect. No, this is the standard that we grew up with. And then I realized, no, I was so far from the truth. And that actually determined the trajectory of my life with my career, with research and, you know, all the education to figure this thing out. I thought I will figure it out and I will rescue the world. Then I will die happy. (laughs) (laughs) Then. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor 
to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. So you, right, in the first place that you turned as a therapist and a researcher was you turned to your own caseload, you turned to your own clients. So you built a model called the Emergent Love Model. And that model began with a deep dive into your own clinical work of why are some of my couples making it and why are some of my couples not making it and how are they describing what they want versus what they're struggling with. And so your model emerged from the data of your clinical practice, and then you took it more broadly and tested your model more broadly. So tell us a little bit about your research journey, please. Sure. So as you mentioned, I started with my clinical work, but you know, uh, for the longest while, any book that I read back then, now is different, back then meaning 20 something years ago, right? was about why couples have conflict, why couples fall apart, why couples divorce, you know, majority of research was around that. I wanted to know why couples succeed. I, it wasn't enough for me to sustain a relationship. I really wanted to see how it looks like when you thrive, because I thought we were thriving and clearly not. So I wanted to figure that one. So I changed the research question to begin with. And then the first piece of research was with 312 couples that the criteria that I put was these couples had to work with me um, at least one year with myself personally. And, and as you know, I work globally. So in the global practice, I picked the couples that had those criteria, these are all couples from all walks of life, from different sexual, relational orientations and uh, length of relationship, all that. So I did a content analysis and I applied the principles of the ground theory. Mm -hmm. For listeners who are not familiar with it, basically you have a bunch of content, you plow through them, and then uh, when you feel like there's nothing new emerging, then you stop. So out of that, there were certain words, certain concepts that emerged. For example, trust, compassion. These were the key concepts that emerged from that research. And then I didn't want it just to be a clinician's perspective or observation, right? Out of the qualitative data that I collected, then I teamed up with my husband, who is a psychometric specialist, and he's equally invested, obviously, because he went through the journey with me. And then, uh, so we put it through the 159 U.S. representative couples who self-identified as thriving. The average relationship, the minimum was one year relationship between them, and the average was 10 years. So some of them were together for 40 years. And we asked them, and we put these concepts into test as, okay, so now that we're talking about compassion, for example, how does that even look like? Does it make sense to you? Do you use this word to describe this behavior? So we went really deep. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we did with this research was we also did some research with the individuals to see whether the perceptions of two people within one couple them from those words are the same. So if I say I respect you, do you receive it the same way? So the expression and experience of it. Another thing we've done, we wanted to see if we could find any correlation. So for example, if I do this, this leads to that. Does it work that way? Or there are nuances that we're missing. So out of that came two things. One was this solidifying all these concepts that we have, six ingredients that were born out of that, that are pretty solid. So we tested and retested it in multiple occasions those six ingredients, and then also a couple's test that came out of that. So for example, which is called relationship panoramic inventory. Couples can take it. There are three categories that become very clear. It's about 29 pages of report. So the average couple in our research, it shows how they are doing in any of these six ingredients and more. And also it will show the couple what are the strengths that they have. 
let's say, for example, they have really good trust system, their compassion is a little bit lacking, right? So that they know what is it that they're very strong at, and then they can borrow from that to make sure that they are mending the cracks that are existing. Yeah, leveraging, leveraging their strength. It's such a tender thing to be part of a couple and to know that you have a growing edge and the growing edge can start to feel like it's all that you are. And so by you creating an assessment tool where you're showing them both strengths and growing edges, you're giving them the message like, listen, the good stuff is what you use and what you hold onto so that you can look at where you need to grow. What a beautiful way of offering that. Can couples anywhere take, like, how can somebody access the relationship panoramic inventory? They just go to the website, this relationship panoramic inventory, and uh, I can actually offer it to put uh, the link to the podcast if you like. And then Wonderful. they take it. If both of them consent, the report is going to them. Or if they like, if they're working with a therapist or a coach, they can add the name of that therapist or a coach there. The report goes to the to that person, the provider, and then they can gather and discuss it and go through it together. Wonderful. What a wonderful tool. You know, what I love so much about, I mean, you and I are both language nerds. So <laughs> this may not appeal to the entire Reimagining Love audience, but I love that you call it the emergent love model because it's there's two levels at which that operates, right? Emergent love, meaning that this model emerged from your deep dive into literature and data, but emergent also is that quality of when these factors are in place, something emerges. Like you use the example in the book of when oxygen and heat? How does that work? I'm losing that idea of like something emerging from the elements. Sure. So when you have a spark and when you have a log, put them together in a conducive context that it has enough oxygen, you will have a beautiful warm fire. Mm -hmm. If you take away any of these elements, the fire dies immediately. Yeah. So these elements from which love emerges. Yes. Yes. Okay. I want you to give our listeners like a little window into all six of the ingredients because we've been building towards this. I feel like we need like a drum roll to the six ingredients. But I also, I also know, I mean, basically the bottom line is that everyone listening just needs to get a copy of your new book. So they have all of these tools at their disposal. But I would love for you to give us just a little window into each of these six ingredients. And if you could, like give us a little snapshot of what it looks like when a couple has this quality. And then also like maybe a little practice that a couple could do to boost this quality if they're sort of like, oh, shoot, I think that this is an area where we really aren't as strong as we could be or used to be or need to be. So could you start us off with attraction as one of the first of the six ingredients? Absolutely. So when you say if all of these are in place, how does it look like? The basic way that I can really, the simplest way I can describe it is you have a peace of heart and clarity of mind. Mm. So when you say how it looks like, the simplest way that I can put it is that the person experiences peace of heart and clarity of mind. So you're not preoccupied with, is this the right person? Am I the right person? Am I doing the right thing? So you're constantly, you know, preoccupied. So that, that goes away. So the six ingredients are mutual attraction, trust, respect, loving behavior, so being loving, compassion, and shared vision. It's very important to pay attention to that word mutual. So if one person is giving, 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 and expressing, or they think that they're expressing, but the other person is receiving it in a different way that is not meaningful to them, we're not really doing the job. Yeah, we don't get to just kind of plant our flag and say, but I'm doing this. It has to also be something that is received by our partner. And if it's not, if there's a mismatch between what we feel like we're giving and what our partner says we're receiving, that's part of the peace of mind and peace of heart is that we can give and receive that feedback. Yes. So when you're talking about to give our audience today something practical to really put in place right here and now, I would say just if your physicality and your context allows, go for a walk and have a conversation with each other around these six ingredients. 
How do you feel attracted in our relationship? How do you feel respected in our relationships? And be very specific. How do you feel loved in our relationship? How do you feel like our visions are aligned and we are committed to go to the same space together, so to speak? So the destination that we are headed towards is defined by the two of us. And then I rarely have couples who have that exercise and come back. They are 100% aligned. Sure. Actually never happens. Mm -mm. One person says, you bring me tea every morning. And I take that as a sign of compassion, for example. The other person says, but that's the way that I show. That's my act of loving. I go out of my way to give you this cup of tea, right? Or the other person says, I put gas in your car. That's me showing you that I love you. And the other person says, well, actually, I don't take that as the act of loving, right? So these are the things that you need to really iron out and make sure that in each category, whatever that you put forward, the other person receives it in a meaningful way as well. It's meaningful to them as well. You're really clear. So if we like focus on attraction, you have a really expansive definition of attraction. This is not, you're not talking about six pack abs or, you know, flowing luscious hair. You're talking about the way in which partners feel drawn to each other. It's about admiration and liking and valuing. I think that's so, so important. Yes. And that's actually in a drastic contrast with whatever that is out there, that you have to feel that a jiggly wiggly feeling of butterflies. <laughs> you have to, and then build a life based on that. And, you know, we know based on research, that feeling amazing if you have it to begin with, but the problem is it will go away on average two years. There's solid research behind it. Absolutely. Right. And then couples come to us and say, well, how can I reignite you cannot reignite anything chemical because when the chemicals interacted with each other, they cannot be reactivated again. Remember, I don't know if in this country you do it on third grade. In Iran, we do it on third grade that you have that baking soda thingy with volcano. Uh huh. Uh huh. So the volcano erupts, right? The chemical reaction. So you cannot reignite it or rekindle it or, you know, whatnot. So what is important is in that attraction chapter I talk about is you really need to be very clear about the points of attraction. You might be attracted to somebody's intellect. You might be attracted to somebody's finances. You might be attracted to somebody's success or values or physicality, as you mentioned. So it's very important for you to be clear that it's not only one thing that makes me drawn to this person. And also attraction to begin with is wonderful, but if it doesn't turn, if it doesn't translate into intimacy, then it will go away eventually, no matter whatever that attraction is, right? And with intimacy, what I mean is the way that I look at it is into me, I see. So knowing yourself over time as you evolve and then into me, you see then I will allow you to see those parts of me. So the context of the relationship allows for that sort of exchange and building together. So that is also one of the main pieces in the attraction that we found. Okay, trust. You're talking about with the trust is about showing up for each other consistently. Trust is that, is that felt sense of you have my back. This is why it's so important you come back again and again to it being reciprocal, that it's not just, are you showing up for me? It's also, am I showing up for you? And that's, that's, you are inviting us to hold up a mirror and look at the ways in which we are doing what we need to do to help our partner trust us as well. Absolutely. And one of the biggest points that I want to make about trust here is the consistency and reliability aspect of it, because you could be a very trustworthy partner. Sometimes, but sometimes you drop the ball. So consistency, are you showing up for me consistently and reliably? Am I showing up for you consistently and reliably? I have clients who come to me and, and this is actually a very, very common example. Uh, one of them, let's say they, they forget to lock the doors at night. Sometimes. Sometimes they forget to pick up their children on time from school. Sometimes they forget to pay the bills on time. 
So these are the ones that, that when you have sometimes in a relationship, we are all human, we make mistakes, but it's sure. extremely important to come back from it, to um, repair and make it better next time. We can't just leave ruptures hanging all over us over a period of time. It breaks. Yep. And minimizing it. It wasn't that big of a deal. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Minimizing it is, is going to land for our partner like a breach of trust. It erodes trust. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. And respect. When you talk about respect, again, you're saying how are each of you keeping each other's needs and priorities in mind? I think it's really, it's really well said. The idea that respect is made real when we prioritize the things that are important, not just to ourselves, but to our partner. So it's, again, that idea of, I think it's so much easier to be like, is my partner respecting me? Is my partner prioritizing me? But also remembering to flip it, right? Am I prioritizing my partner? Am I showing up for my partner? Which doesn't mean always, every time, because that, that moves into that self-sacrifice. But really, like respect is understanding what matters to you, what's important to you, and how do we make that happen? Absolutely. And if I may add another aspect to this, are you respectable? Hmm. Because respecting another person and being respected by them is one thing. And a lot of people come to me and say, my partner doesn't respect me. And then I ask them, I just pose a simple question. Are you respectable? It takes them a while to respond. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's hard enough when we know that we are living out of our own alignment or out of our own integrity, or we aren't living in a way that we feel good about. That's hard enough on its own. It is amplified then when we are in a relationship because we've got our partner has a front row seat to watching us not care for ourselves, not live in our own integrity. And so then we are asking for something from somebody else that we're struggling to give ourselves. So true. So if we are not holding our own boundaries lovingly and firmly, nobody else is going to. So that's important because one of the concepts that uh, a lot of people struggle with is this acquired narcissism, as I call it. (laughs) So we let other people walk all over us and then we push them away. We kick them away because they are the enemy. They didn't let us to keep our boundaries together. And then instead of boundaries, we're going to put borders all around us and shut everybody out. Just knowing your boundaries, and I would like to actually invite people who are listening to think about boundaries as not something to shut other people out, but to invite other people in because you are actually going to help them as how to treat you. So that is a very different concept, right? Mm -hmm. So with that, we don't need to be hostile. We don't need borders, healthy boundaries. As long as we communicate them lovingly and firmly, they are pretty strong and solid. And then we are going to be uh, respected by other people as well. But it starts with us. Yeah. Okay. Compassion. This is a really big one. Honoring our partner's emotional experiences without making it about us. Yes. That's a beautiful definition of compassion and so, so, so important. So what do you want to add there or what's the kind of check-in that we can use to assess the degree to which we're bringing compassion to our relationship? So first I have to say there are multiple researchers and scholars who define compassion differently. The way that I look at it and it emerged from our research was when you are at the presence of another person, and you are not over-empathizing. So you don't make the issue about yourself. Let's say I come to you and say, Alexandra, I'm bleeding. And then you say, oh, you're bleeding? Let me show you, I'm bleeding too. And then I say, no, 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 I'm really hurting, but mine is hurt. My, mine hurts more. Or for example, if I come to you and say, I'm bleeding, and you say, oh my God, you're bleeding. And then you start falling apart. Then I have to forget about my bleeding, come to help you. So I see that so many times about parents with their children, couples, in work spaces also. So if we can't really hold that compassionate space to don't make the scenario about ourselves immediately, then we have an issue. And I'm not talking about relating because relating is a way that we communicate as humans. Like, for example, if somebody says something, I immediately go to that memory that I have to be able to relate to you. 
to be able to understand where you're coming from. Relating is healthy, but over-relating and over-empathizing with another person is harmful. So in a way, compassion is feeling for the person. Empathy is feeling with the person. And in my humble opinion, our research shows that we need less empathy in intimate relationships and more compassion. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's so important. Okay. And then finally, loving behaviors. We've sort of referenced this, but come back to it about, this is about how we show our partner that they're special to us, that we cherish them, that we hold them in a very, very special place. So, so why are the loving behaviors matter so much? Why is this one of the six ingredients? Loving behaviors are what we think. So it's really funny because as I was writing it, one of our editorial uh, team came back to me and said that the whole book is about love. Do we really need <laughs> loving behavior? I said, yes, because that is what the problem is with this whole definition that if you don't kiss me, you don't love me. If you don't have sex with me, you don't love me. If you don't make me the food that I like, you don't love me. So everything is under love. Love is to blame for everything. Let's separate it and give it a specific place, right? When I talk about act of love or being loving towards somebody, what I'm talking about is that quality of tenderness. Hmm. Is there tenderness in your words, in your actions, in your touch? That differentiates that. From other things, act of kindness, act of compassion, all of that. That differentiates it. The other thing is that specificity of it. Is this something that I do for everyone or is this something that I do for this specific person? That makes it special. How do I show you that you're special to me? That is also the quality of act of love. And let us not forget that in all of these ingredients that we talk about, there is action, there is the energy field that we have around each other. Uh, and through those actions are verbal as well as touch. We shouldn't really forget about touch. It's a big part of all of these ingredients as well. How do we convey that all of these ingredients through touch? I really, really want us to get to our listener question. And before we do, I wanted just to read a little part of Love by Design to kind of close this down. How do you feel about me reading you to you? <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you write, this is sort of early in the book, you write, drastic and dramatic emotional states are not a baseline in emergent love. Intense rages, sobbing reconciliations, bitter resentments, makeup sex, anxiety about being smothered or abandoned. But this does not mean that it is boring or monotonous. The opposite of tumult is not Boredom. Instead, it is a continuous yet subtle calibration of needs and resources that maintains equilibrium even as it shifts from day to day. That's that peace of mind and that peace of heart that you were talking about before, isn't it? It's so powerful, Dr. Sarah, saying that the opposite of tumult is not boredom. That this emergent love, there is, that it is a kind of peace and that peace doesn't mean settling and peace doesn't mean giving up. This is really different. There's there's a dynamic quality in what you are inviting us to strive for here, isn't there? Exactly. So it's not crossing the bridge and happily live ever after this static one plus one equals one, right? So it's a dynamic everyday process that every day we wake up and we think, in my relationship today, what do I need more? Do I need a sprinkle of compassion, a little bit more of that today? <laughs> do I need a little more respect? Do I need a little bit of uh, love today? So we can decide what is it that we're making for that day. And that's the intentionality part of it. And that makes it pretty active and exciting, actually, not boring. Yes, yes, beautiful. Okay, let's see what we can offer to our anonymous listener who is from Los Angeles, California, and she uses she, her pronouns. And I think that everything we've been talking about is going to really come into play here with this listener question. So she writes, I've been with my boyfriend for three years now, and we have an amazing, loving and secure relationship. A running theme we've had since the beginning is how much he has prioritized his friends, sometimes over me. And I can't help but feel envious of just how much he values them, despite them not being the kind of close friends I would personally keep. 
i.e. he has done more for them than vice versa. We've spoken about this many times and he has been consciously making an effort to put me first and give me reassurance, but part of me still feels that he's a lot happier with them. He says this isn't the case, but I see how much more fun he's having when he's around them. I've told him how I feel and we've been trying to solve the issue. What am I missing? How do I stop feeling this way? All right, Dr. Sarah, what stands out to you about this question? Okay, my lovely listener. So (laughs) what I'm hearing from you is that you're struggling to think that your partner puts their resources, the way that I divide them is time, energy, attention, and money somewhere else beside uh, what you think they should be. So there are three things that come up for me. The one is the feeling of envious. That's one. The second one is when you say these are not the kind of friends that I would keep personally. So that's a level of judgment. You don't actually respect your partner's decision to put the resources where he's putting. And then the third one is uh, when you say he's a lot happier with them. So there is a hint of... um, I don't actually hear envy. I have to say I hear a little bit of jealousy because envy is whatever that is, I want it too. But jealousy means why do you do that? I don't want that to exist. So I wonder if you can differentiate that for yourself, starting from there. And also being very realistic, I wonder if you could sit with your partner and actually draw something that I give to my couples There's an exercise that I give them that I call social capital that I ask them to do individually and as a couple. So basically you sit together and you literally put pots and pans around you or buckets or strainers, whatever that helps you. And then you have a bunch of post-its, write the names of the people that are in your life. It could be acquaintances, it could be people who are friendly with, who you are friendly with or friends or whatnot. So you do this exercise individually. Each pot has a name or each bucket has a name, right? So you're going to say friends and family, uh, let's say out of obligation, maybe, right? Or out of love that I'm with these people. These are the work or networking people. These are the people that I don't have in my life and I would like to have in my life. These are the people that I call friends, but hey, maybe they're not as friend, you know, like they're friends, but maybe they're friendly, right? So do that individually, then come together. Then create one of these exercises together as a couple. Who are the people in your lives and which bucket each of you assign them to? Then that will become a point of conversation. Some of them might get pruned over time or there and then. Some of them might, um, you might actually put more intention behind them. Again, remember the resources that we're talking about is time, money, attention, and energy. So where do you direct your energy? And also pay attention to where you put your energy and what you get energy. So when you say that these are the people that he has done more for them than vice versa, what does that mean? And does it look like the same for your partner as it looks like to you? Because you're kind of one degree separated from the situation. So that would be my two cents that I can offer. Mm, it's really interesting. I really like the idea of the two of them kind of looking at their whole like social ecology, the whole like map of their relationships in their lives. And you have a, a very concrete way of them doing that with post-it notes and buckets and, and working separately at first and coming together and looking at that. Cause that is, I mean, it's true. Like a relationship is the two of them, but it really is a relationship really is the coming together of their two networks. And the chances that our listener and her boyfriend have the exact same definition of friendship, have the exact same definition of reciprocity in a friendship, like the chances of that are slim to none. And in the space of what she deems to be healthy, valuable friendship, and what he deems to be healthy, valuable friendship in that space is conflict and rub and opportunities for learning and reflection. And I was thinking similarly, Sarah, about kind of the way in which perhaps her judgment about her boyfriend's friends just may be an invitation for her to bring her attention inward. 
Is there something that she's craving in her own life that she's watching him have with ease? How might she be able to cultivate a bit more of that in her own life? Um, like the ways in which, you know, I, sometimes I, I hate it when it's, <laughs> when this is the case, like I hate it when what my partner is showing me, like I'm judging his behavior, but really it's like a little opportunity for me to look at what am I depriving myself of, or what am I not prioritizing? So, you know, our partners can be these teachers for us. So I wonder if part of her healing, part of the quote unquote solving this is for her to be brave enough and humble enough and um, curious enough to look at, okay, what do his friendship dynamics highlight for me about my own life, what I'm longing for, the ways in which maybe I don't give myself the permission to divide up social capital the way that my boyfriend does. And I'd be really curious for her to do that with tons of gentleness and curiosity and no attachment to the outcome, but just rather than it being a problem that has to be fixed by him changing or her settling, just self-inquiry. I wonder where that might get her. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. You unlocked quite a few other areas that could be underlining here because this is just a few lines that we are reading, right? The other thing that I want to point out, going back like full circle to the submerged in love, the idea there is you are my everything and I am your everything. Yes. So if you dedicate mm-hmm. any resources beyond what I expect or what I want you to or what I'm comfortable with, with other people, it could be even your family, not even friends. Um, then it it means that you're not in this fully. So that's that's another aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the way that we look at it. If I go to my friends and recharge myself full of energy, come back, I will bring back that energy. So in essence, I'm not taking away anything from my relationship or couple them. I'm giving energy back to it. So that's another aspect that we can look into. Ah, so good. So good. And again, the last thing we want is for this listener to beat herself up for having internalized the myth that that she should be her boyfriend's everything. That is something that was ingrained in her from every Disney movie, every fairy tale, every whatever, right? She was taught that a good girlfriend, a good wife, a good partner leaves her boyfriend or her husband or her partner wanting for nothing. She is his sun Mm -hmm. and moon and stars and solar system. So that is, she did not make that up. She did not pull that out of thin air. That is something, she was a good listener to our culture when our culture taught her that. And so the fact that he's so tied into a network of friends feels to her like it's a it's a ding against herself that somehow she's doing something wrong that he needs other people and so you are asking her to really challenge that cultural myth it's a cultural myth yeah. it's not her fault yeah. and i love that idea of can she notice the way in which when he steps away to go be with his friends he comes back recharged for her and in that way it is a service to the relationship actually Right. Absolutely. I also want to point out something that you mentioned, build on it, that um, I really don't want you to walk away feeling guilty for this listener, because it's very common that people also act very differently. So they bring their best of self to the Uh, friends and family and outside, and they bring the leftover home. And that piece of it, we shouldn't forget as well. That could happen. But I didn't go there initially because you mentioned that you have a loving and secure relationship and your partner does everything he can to reassure you. But that is also another possibility. And it's not one thing or the other. It could be all of the above. It could be none of the above. But we hope that you take away something that resonates with you and you can work with here. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. You know, the one last thing I wanted to, put in here is I I think that because of, again, how we're socialized, we put things into hierarchies, you know, we sort of like rank things. And it's with one thing I love about the emergent love model, the emergent love model has six ingredients, but you don't say this is the most important. This is the least important. It really is more of a, a template or a menu. So I wonder if, if our listener might, might also challenge herself to just rather than saying he's more happy with his friends, could she kind of like tease it apart a little bit more and think about 
what are the elements of himself that come forward in the friendship versus the elements of himself that come forward with her, like textures and tones rather than more or less. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Beautiful said. The other thing is for couples, they've been together for three years, you said, yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think you said they're together three, three years. years. So one of the things that happen is um, sometimes if a person doesn't feel wanted, respected, or admired, or they feel fitting, or they feel that they belong in those circles of friendship, that could also make them think like, I wouldn't spend time with these people. Why do you even waste your time? And over a period of time, what I see in couples is they actually lose respect for other areas of judgment for their partner as well. So look at your friends. I don't really respect your other judgments as well. So this could be another underlying reason for this issue. Agree. Agree. Yeah. And what is it, what is it that she finds threatening or worrisome um, about Mm -hmm. these, about these friends? Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. Good. And it's pretty vulnerable actually to pose this question. So I appreciate it. Yeah, listener, we we appreciate you because that's right. This you have, you know, even in her the way that she wrote the question, she she brings a kind of self-awareness and a curiosity and we have like we have we've given her some avenues to explore that are about conversations with her boyfriend, but also that are avenues about self-exploration. So it's it is the idea of 1 plus 1 equals 3. There's some her stuff, there's some him stuff, and there's some relationship stuff going on here. And and I don't know that, you know, it, it may be that this is never solved, right? So much of what happens in our relationships just needs to be carried with ever more grace and curiosity. And it's, it may not be solvable, but it may be able to be carried more gently um, and more gracefully as, as she brings in some of these ideas that we're talking about here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listener. And thank you, Dr. Sarah, for working with me on that one. (laughs) My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. So if this is somebody's very first time getting to know you, um, even though they perhaps already know you because you were one of the very first guests on Reimagining Love. And so I, I love that we're coming back together again. How can somebody get to know you and your work? Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, my new book is Love by Design. I really poured all of my practice experiences, cultural experiences, as much as I could from my personal experiences and um, and also two significant pieces of research in that book. I'm not saying that because I want to sell my book. Oh, I want you to sell your book. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope that everybody reads this book. Yes. I honestly think I didn't leave as much as I can tell with my knowledge today. I didn't leave any stone unturned. You're going to find very different meanings attached to very commonly used words like respect, compassion, attraction. And I hope that by the end of reading this book or listening to the audio, you can embrace a new model of love. Because Einstein said, we cannot solve the problem with the same frame of mind that created it. We have to see the world anew. We have to look at it anew. And that is what I'm offering, a new model of love. And I hope that we can create world peace, one relationship at a time. (laughs) That's a big goal. That's right. That's right. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. You are, I mean, you're just, you're, you are the perfect author for this book. You know, you have such a global perspective and global experience and you are so well-trained and thoughtful and you are unafraid to bring yourself into the book. And it really is. It's, it's comprehensive. It's gentle. It is um, incredibly resourceful. And you will come away from this book with a more expansive view of yourself and relationship and and more skilled at being able to cultivate what you really want and need and deserve in relationships. So absolutely. So we're going to have in the show notes, links to the book, links to the relationship panoramic inventory, links to your social media, of course. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sarah. Thank you so much. And you're very kind and generous with your words. I don't take that lightly. And thanks to everyone who listened. I hope you took away something from it. (music) 
thank you to our Reimagining Love listener for bringing that wonderful question to the show. And thank you to Dr. Sara Nasrzadeh for joining me today. To learn more about Dr. Sara's new book, Love by Design, Six Ingredients to Build a Lifetime of Love, make sure you check out the show notes of this episode. And if you're interested in taking the relationship panoramic inventory, Dr. Sara was also kind enough to provide a special discount code for Reimagining Love listeners. So use the code REIMAGINE for 10% off. And that discount code is valid until February 29th. And I'll put all those details also in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I am passionate about making Reimagining Love an important resource for you. So if you enjoy the show, it would mean the absolute world to me if you would leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Until next time, be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.